everybody welcome to another live sunday night podcast and i want to start off this evening's podcast by talking about the non-farm payroll report that came out on friday that was for the month of april and again this is the report that everybody seems to be waiting for although now you know the inflation numbers seem to be of elevated importance because people are paying attention to them. But for many, many years, and still including today, it's this report, which is the granddaddy of the monthly reports. Everybody waits for this number. And I'm not even sure why, because to me, it's pretty insignificant given how completely unreliable these numbers now are. I mean, everybody is looking for a strong report as evidence that the economy is good. And so somehow, we keep manufacturing these strong jobs reports. In fact, the report that we got on Friday was the 13th consecutive beat where the number of jobs created exceeded what Wall Street expected. Now, what are the odds of that? 13 times in a row? I mean, you're gonna have a few misses in there just by pure chance. I mean, how could the expectation be too low every single time? I mean, it seems more likely that the government knows what the number is and they just want to beat it. And so they end up doing it. I'm a little skeptical of a streak that goes on for 13 consecutive months, especially given how weak the overall economy is. Because what's happened during those 13 months? Well, the Fed has taken interest rates from zero to five and a quarter. Seems that that would be a difficult environment for job creation. Also, look at all the layoffs that we're getting. I mean, tech companies are laying everybody off. Banks are laying off. In fact, we even got on Thursday, before we got this non-farm payroll number, we got the number of job cuts from Challenger. And it was another pretty big month. It wasn't quite as big as... Last month, they reported 89,703 job cuts. This month, it was 66,995. But that's still a lot of cuts. These are much bigger numbers. And it stands to reason that companies would be laying off workers. I mean, now they're laying off workers because of AI. But before that, they were just laying them off because their businesses are collapsing because their costs are rising. And interest rates are rising and consumers are struggling. Companies have run out of money. Uh, and so they're having to cut their workforce just to reduce their cash burn. So it would make sense, right, that we wouldn't have a lot of jobs. Yet we keep coming out with these strong reports. So first of all, here is what the government reported for April. So the expectation was 178,000 jobs. And that would have been less than the 236,000 jobs that were reported for March, we came out with 253,000. So a solid beat. In fact, the range of expectations went from 140,000 to 200,000. So we came out above the high end. But there was one wrinkle, nobody seemed to talk about it, but there was a downward revision from March 
from 236,000 all the way down to 165,000. It was basically a push. I think if you take the two months combined and you net out the revisions, it was only a beat of 2,000 jobs. But nobody really talked about the downward revisions to March. It was all the beat from, from April. Now, of course, I don't really remember what the expectation was for March that the government beat. But I don't know, maybe 165 wouldn't have been a beat. So maybe this isn't 13 in a row if you go back and look at the revisions. But any number that's subject to that kind of wow revision, again, Wall Street puts a lot more stock in this number than they should. The unemployment rate fell from 3.6 to 3.4. Private payrolls also beat, but again, subject to a similar downward revision. They were looking for 153,000. The government reported 230,000. But the 189,000 that they originally reported last month was revised down to 123,000. So that was a big number. Same thing on manufacturing. They were looking for no new manufacturing jobs created. Instead, they created 11,000. But last month's loss of 1,000 was revised to a loss of 8,000. So almost a push. The uh, labor force participation rate stayed steady at 62.6. One number that did beat, which should have been a negative for the markets, was average hourly earnings. They jumped from 0.3 to 0.5. And the year-over-year increase in average hourly earnings went from 4.2 to 4.4. So these were hotter numbers. And the market is very sensitive to anything that looks stronger or looks like higher inflation. The bond market reacted as it had been, right? Bond prices sold off, yields rose. Gold did what it always does when we get stronger economic data. And they define hotter inflation as stronger data, which doesn't even make any sense. But gold dropped. As soon as the number came out, gold sold off by 40 bucks. But it was near a record high on Thursday. Gold was trading above 2,050 when this stronger than expected number came out. And gold immediately tanked by 40 bucks. It closed down about $30, still well above uh, 2,000. I think we're trading about up a buck right now in early trading on Sunday night. Gold's about 2,020. And even though gold stocks initially got clobbered on the $40 drop in the price of gold, By the end of the day, they were broadly unchanged. I mean, some of the stocks actually finished positive on the day. So to me, with gold down 30 bucks and gold stocks flat to positive or down just a little, again, that's showing me that 2000s of support and gold stock traders are now starting to recognize that. In fact, this time we couldn't even get below 2000. We had been trading below 2000 on the sell-offs, but on this $40 sell-off, we couldn't even get to 2000. That's how strong the market is. The one market that seemed to act different than it had been acting was the stock market. The Dow Jones, despite this strong economic data, remember, uh, good news is supposed to be bad news for stocks and bad news is good news. This jobs report was taken by Wall Street as good news. And it had within it, you know, bad news on inflation, meaning bigger numbers, yet the Dow was up 546 points. That's a big move. And in fact, the NASDAQ on a percentage basis 
was up even bigger. I think the NASDAQ was up 2%, and the Russell 2000 up about 2.4%. So all these equities rose. And in fact, the riskiest ex equities rose even more. I think the Kathy Wood uh, ARK Innovation ETF was up about 4.5%. Now, maybe shorts covered. Maybe that's what was going on. We had this stronger than expected economic news that should have been bad for stocks. Instead, stock ra stocks rallied anyway. I still think that we're going to see more downside in the stock market because my take, and I gave this to everybody on the last podcast on Wednesday following the Powell press conference, where Powell basically threw cold water on the idea that the Fed has paused, that we're finished uh, with the rate hikes. And then he went even further by saying the expectation that we're going to cut rates is wrong. If anybody thinks we're going to cut rates, and of course the market is certain that the Fed's going to cut rates this year because it's already pricing it in. But despite that, Powell said, no, we're not going to cut rates. We're going to keep rates where we are. We've got to fight inflation. Given the fact that that's what Powell's saying, forget about what he's ultimately going to do, but given the fact that that's what he's saying, that is a powerful headwind for stocks. So I expect them to be moving down. But I want to talk a little bit more, though, about the jobs numbers, because once again, you really got to look beneath the headlines to see these numbers, because these are not strong numbers. And again, when you're looking at the jobs report, they're counting jobs. They're not counting people who have jobs. It's not the number of people who are working. It's how many jobs the people who are working have. And so what most of these new jobs represent are people working second, third, fourth jobs. That's what they are. They're not people coming into the labor force who weren't participating, and now they've got a full-time job. These are people that are already working their butts off, and now they have to work even harder to make ends meet. But if you look at the household survey, compare that to the number. Again, the household survey, which I think is probably more accurate on people working, that had 139,000 jobs added. That was the lowest number since November of last year. But what really stood out this month was the jobs that were added as a result of the birth death model. Now, I haven't really talked a lot about birth death uh, on the podcast recently on these payroll numbers. If you're not familiar with that, the way that works is the guys that compute these uh, non-farm payroll numbers, they're supposed to try to guess the number of jobs that were created or lost based on new businesses that were either formed or you know, existing businesses that were shut down. Now, they don't actually have the data, so they kind of wing it, I guess. I'm really not sure what the methodology is. I think it's probably highly subjective because if you think the economy is good, well, you're just going to assume that new businesses are being formed. So you have that bias. If you think the economy is bad, well, maybe you'll assume that some businesses are folding and they're going out of business. So we know that everybody in the government thinks we have this super strong economy, you know, and that's shrugging off uh, inflation and rate hikes. And so if you have that kind of bias, maybe that's why they keep uh, assuming that all these new businesses are being born when 
it's probably more likely that existing businesses are dying off. So that automatically means the number is going to be way off because instead of subtracting jobs based on companies that went out of business, you're adding jobs based on fictitious companies that never really started up, but you're just assuming it. But this month's number assumed, and I got this stuff from a Zero Hedge article just to uh, give them a plug, but the birth death model for uh, April was 378,000 jobs that were added. That is the second highest ever. How is it that this economy is so super strong right now that we just had new businesses being started and hiring the second largest number of workers in history? That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't even come close to passing the smell test. And in fact, if there were only 253,000 jobs created total, yet the government assumed that brand new businesses that they don't even have proof were formed, if those so-called new businesses added 378,000 jobs, that's all the jobs. That means if it wasn't for these businesses that the government assumes were created last month, this is just one month of new business formation, right? assuming they weren't existing, 125,000 jobs would have been lost. So that means the businesses that we know are operating, they fired 125,000 people or they got rid of 125,000 jobs. Who knows how many people that represents, right? Because some people could have had two or three of those jobs. But 125,000 jobs were lost by companies that they know existed. But then they assumed that 378,000 jobs were created by companies they're guessing uh, started up during the month. So none of this makes any sense. All these numbers, I think, are just you know pulled out of a hat. And they're very likely to be massively revised, whether it's a month from now or even a year from now. They go back and they fix this because they know how inaccurate it really is. So given how wildly inaccurate these numbers actually are when they get reported, it makes no sense that Wall Street should put so much stock in this data point. So I'm going to talk though about some other data points that I think are more important than the uh, uh, payroll numbers that came out on Friday. But before I do that, we're going to take a quick break for the commercial and then we'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. All right. So I want to talk about three other uh, pieces of economic information that came out on Thursday and Friday that didn't get nearly as much coverage in the financial media as the uh, non-farm payroll number, but which I think are far more significant than that number as an economic report card on the health of the U.S. economy. One was the productivity and cost numbers 
that came out on Thursday. And in fact, this is the number that might have sparked the near new record high in the price of gold. I don't know. I think the futures contracts might have traded at a record. Um, not, I don't think the cash did, but we came pretty close on on Thursday. And I think this number was part of the reason. But non-farm productivity dropped by 2.7%. That's a big decline in productivity. The expectation was for unchanged, which is still not good. You want productivity to go up, but you don't want it to drop by 2.7%. I mean, that's pretty bad. Now, in the uh, prior quarter, it was at 1.7, and they revised that down to up 1.6. So that's still not great productivity growth. Uh, but minus 2.7 just you know got rid of whatever productivity growth there was. And one of the main reasons that productivity was so low was a big jump in unit labor costs which were supposed to rise by 3.9%, and instead they spiked by 6.3%. That's a big jump in unit labor costs, and it's a much bigger than the prior quarter, which was just slightly revised up from 3.2 to 3.3. Now, some people will think, oh, well, that's good, right? Labor costs are going up. That means workers are making more money. Not necessarily. Number one, because labor costs involve a lot more than just wages. They involve benefits. And if benefits get more expensive for the employer, that may not necessarily be a positive for the worker. Right? Let's say uh, a worker is getting health insurance from his employer. And the employer now has to spend more money on that insurance policy. Well, I mean, it doesn't affect the worker. I mean, he's got the same policy, and if his boss is paying more money for it, that doesn't mean he's better off. Now, of course, the boss may end up uh, having the worker cover some of those higher costs. Maybe they end up with more higher co-pays or higher deductibles. So that's not in these numbers, but that may be happening. But whatever extra health insurance costs the employers have to bear, well, that's going to be part of labor costs but also a lot of rules and regulations and other components go into labor costs. What the workers actually get is just one part of an employer's overall labor costs. And in fact, if labor costs are really going up, that might result in the employer trying to squeeze workers to earn less or to get a smaller raise because other costs are going up. Because if you have a job, all of your costs of hiring you, you need to have enough productivity to cover that because someone's not going to hire you if your productivity doesn't exceed the total cost of employing you, which is not just your labor, but all the other taxes and regulatory costs that governments add to your wages. And you have to be productive enough to cover all those expenses. So rising unit labor costs like that are bad. Now, especially if you are hoping that inflation is going to come down. Because one way the official measures of inflation, you know, the CPI, one way to keep the CPI from going up is to have 
growing productivity. Because as productivity increases, costs come down. And that allows the government to create some inflation that doesn't show up in the CPI. Meaning, let's say we're so productive, our productivity is so high, that prices would have come down by uh, 3%. But the government creates a bunch of inflation, and instead prices go up by 2%. Well, we have 5% inflation, but you only see 2% because you don't see the price cuts that never happen. Or another way to put it, let's say inflation would have been 10%, but because of rising productivity uh, and prices, let's say they would have dropped by 5%, and now inflation's only 5%, at least that's what's reported. So rising productivity makes these inflation numbers look good. But on the other hand, if we're getting falling productivity, it's going to work in reverse. If productivity is going down, well, then prices might be going up based on falling productivity. Then you add inflation on top of that, and it makes it worse. So if you're hoping that you're going to get lower CPI numbers, you need to hope for more productivity to basically reduce the inflation that the Fed is creating to help get the Fed out of jail by the economy lowering costs in the face of the Fed's inflation, which is raising prices. But if productivity is not helping out, uh, then that goal is going to be much harder for the Fed to achieve. And of course, all this talk about wages going up, people want to talk about wage increases. Those are nominal. There's only one way that you can get real wages to go up, and that's if productivity goes up. Workers have to be more productive to earn more. If they're not more productive, it's impossible for them to earn more. They can only earn more if they deliver greater productivity to their employer, because that's the only way their employer can actually pay them more. So when you see falling productivity, you know that real wages can't go up. In fact, they have to go down in order for people to maintain their jobs. Otherwise, they're going to have to get fired. So this is bad news. It didn't get a lot of coverage. Uh, but it should have. Now, another data point that came out, which I think was also important, that they kind of mentioned is consumer credit. And this number came out on Friday. So the same day as the jobs report, it just came out later, like three o'clock in the afternoon. So, you know, on a Friday, maybe people have already you know left uh, for the weekend. And so they're not really paying attention to uh, numbers that come out at three o'clock on a Friday. But the consumer credit number, the expectation was for a jump of 17 billion for consumer credit. And the range of estimates was 15.8% to 18%. And the actual increase in consumer credit was 26 and a half billion. This is a huge number, uh, big jump in, uh, in consumer credit. It was well above the $15.1 billion increase in consumer credit from, uh, from the prior month. Now, one of the reasons that this is so important is everybody is hoping that the Fed's war on inflation is working, that all these rate hikes are taking a toll and that inflation is going to come down to 2%. Well, this consumer credit number and this is one of the biggest numbers we've had in a while. Uh, you know, I think it was like the second biggest jump in credit card debt that we've had. If you're getting this big jump in consumer credit, 
that shows you that the Fed is losing the inflation war. Because, and I've said this on this podcast before, the way rising interest rates are supposed to fight inflation is by making it more expensive for consumers to borrow money. And if they can't borrow as much money, well, then they have to borrow less. And if they're borrowing less, they're buying less. So spending comes down. Demand comes down because credit is more expensive and therefore less available. So consumers borrow less, they spend less. That reduction in demand helps bring down prices. Well, what do these numbers tell us? That's not happening. Yes, the Fed is raising interest rates, but that's not stopping the consumer from continuing to borrow and spend. So that means that these rate hikes are not nearly enough to get the job done. And one of the reasons for that is that interest rates are still negative. So it still makes sense to borrow money if the rate you're borrowing at is less than the inflation rate. Now, I know like people who are buying on their credit cards, you know, and they're paying 20% interest. I mean, that's way above the inflation rate, but they're still borrowing, right? None of this has worked. None of this has stopped people from using their credit cards. If the Fed wants to make headway in fighting inflation, people have to leave those credit cards in their wallets. They have to stop buying stuff on credit, right? That's the demand. You know, inflation, it's not just money supply, but credit. It's an expansion of credit, and credit continues to expand. And what does that do? That drives up prices. We need credit to contract. That's what we need. That's not happening. And, you know, this whole idea, and I've mentioned this before, people keep saying the way the Fed is supposed to fight demand is cause people to lose their jobs, right? We want people to be unemployed so they stop spending. Look, you can be unemployed and keep spending, right? Because people get unemployment benefits when they're unemployed. They spend that. They don't lose their credit cards. Your credit card company doesn't take your credit card away when you're unemployed. In fact, you probably use it more when you're unemployed because your unemployment benefits are lower than what your paycheck used to be. So you use your credit card more. So people keep spending when they lose their jobs. So that's not going to do it. And I've said many times, the last thing we want is for people to stop working. Because if we have an inflation problem, that means we have too much money and not enough stuff. So we either need less money or more stuff or some combination. One way you get more stuff is if you have more people working, making the stuff. But if people lose their jobs, then there's less stuff because they're not making it. So that means more upward pressure on prices. So if the Fed really wants to fight inflation, the last thing they want is people to be out of work. They want people working. What the Fed wants is the people who are working to stop spending. People have to save. Don't go out and buy stuff. Take what you earn and save it. That's what we need. And the other thing about savings is now that represents money that can be loaned to businesses to invest in capital to produce even more. So we want people working and saving so we can make capital investments, so we can grow the economy with more production. That's what would help to bring down prices. We don't want to just throw people out of work so they can keep on spending without producing. And that's what's happening. People are losing their jobs and they still spend. And the people who have their jobs, they don't care about rising interest rates. They're spending anyway. So these numbers show you that there is no progress being made on inflation. Everybody wants to pretend that we're getting closer to the 2% goal 
We're nowhere near getting back to 2%. As I said, this is a fantasy. Nobody is willing to accept the fact that those days are long over. In fact, it was a miracle that they ever happened in the first place. I mean, part of it was just the lies inherent in the CPI and all that. But there were a lot of exogenous factors that helped keep uh, the CPI down. One being the low interest rates. Paradoxically, I've talked about that, but 0% interest rates for a while were keeping prices low because companies were able to borrow all this money at zero and they passed on those low interest costs to their customers. And in fact, you had a lot of companies because credit was so plentiful and interest rates were zero, they could price their products really low or they can give them away. They were losing money and because they didn't care because they can sell stock because everybody wanted speculative assets in 0% interest rates. So there were all sorts of temporary factors that were allowing that low inflation. It wasn't that the Fed was doing a good job. They were doing a lousy job. They were creating massive amounts of inflation. People want to give the Fed credit. Hey, the Fed really did a good job and they kept inflation below 2%. They did a lousy job. They just got lucky that inflation was 2%. Again, a combination of luck and lies, but they were able to fool people into believing that it was less than 2%. But now it's so bad, they can't fool anybody with that trick anymore. And people just assume that we're going to go back to that. We can't. That wasn't normal. High inflation, that's normal. When you have all this money printing, when you have all this debt, you get high inflation. And in fact, the other thing that's happening now is the de-dollarization, which you know, pretty much everybody is talking about it. And it's not an accident that they're talking about it. They're talking about it because it's happening. A lot of people don't necessarily comprehend the gravity of, of, of what this implies, but it is happening. And this is another reason that inflation is going to be so much higher because one of the other ways the Fed got lucky and we had such low inflation numbers was because of the dollar's reserve status because so many of the dollars the Fed was creating were exported and they were hoarded by our trading partners in financial assets. They went into bonds, they went into stocks. So they didn't they didn't buy consumer goods. So we had a lot more money, but it wasn't chasing goods. It was chasing financial assets. And that's another reason that stocks did well and bonds did well because the inflation that we created was used to buy those assets instead of consumer goods. Well, all that is changing and will change as the world de-dollarizes and moves away from the US dollar. So they're not gonna need dollars to buy these financial assets. So the, those prices are gonna be coming down, but the prices of goods, the stuff they're gonna buy instead, right? that stuff is gonna go way up. So this is another thing that's happening, which also brings me to the other data point that came out uh, on this, on Thursday, I think it was, that again, gets zero coverage. I don't think anybody even talks about it anymore. And that was the trade deficit, this time for the month of March. And the trade deficit wasn't much worse than expected. I mean, it was worse. I mean, just like the jobs numbers are pretty much always better than expected, the trade deficits are almost always worse. I mean, every once in a while, you get one that's lower but they're pretty much always worse than expected. And even if they're lower than expected, they're still horrific. It's not like they're ever good. It's always a huge negative number. And, and so for March, they were looking 
for $63.7 billion deficit. And instead, they got 64.2, so a bigger deficit. And in fact, the prior months was notched up just a tenth, but the prior month was a bigger number. It was 70.6 billion. So we did get a reduction in the trade deficit for the month, but it's still an enormous number. And that again is showing you that Americans are continuing to spend because that's the American spending that is driving those trade deficits because we're spending money on imports and we see that in the trade deficit. If the Fed really was um, pursuing a monetary policy that was going to be effective at reducing the inflation rate, you would need to see these trade deficits coming way down because Americans would have to be responding to the Fed's monetary tightening by spending less. And if we were spending less, well, the trade deficits would be a lot lower. But the fact that we're still running these horrific trade deficits, again, shows that the government is not making any progress. And of course, it's not just the Fed, rather, the government itself, because the government continues to spend money. The in excess of $2 trillion budget deficits continue. Those budget deficits represents additional spending because people who get that money from the government, they're going out and spending it. They're buying all these imported products, right? That's what happens with the budget deficits. This is money that the U.S. government is sending out to Americans that they didn't collect from Americans in taxes. And so there's a big deficit. But what are all these Americans doing with all this money? Well, they're buying stuff with it, right? And so you can see that in the trade deficit. But as long as everybody is spending, we're, we're not going to have a reduction in, in CPI. Prices are going to keep on rising as a result of all that spending. Now, while I'm on the topic of government spending, the debt ceiling, again, is in the news. And I was reading some quotes online from Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, talking about this. And you would think, right, if she's the Secretary of the Treasury, her job, in theory, should be to reassure all the bondholders that America is good for its debts, right? We're going to pay our debts, so don't worry. You know, we will do what it takes to pay you, right? I'm the Secretary of the Treasury, and I'm going to make sure that we prioritize our bondholders. They're going to take priority because, you know, that's the full faith and credit of the United States, right? We, we, we can't default on that. That would be horrific. So don't worry, you know, about the debt ceiling. We will pay you. We will find a way. We will cut other spending. We'll, we'll do something, but we're going to pay. No, that's not what Janet Yellen is saying, right? Here, I'm, here here's one quote from Janet Yellen. Quote, all I want to say is that it's, co- it's Congress's job to do this, meaning raise the debt ceiling. If they fail to do it, we will have an economic and financial catastrophe that will be of our own making. And there is no action that the pres- that President Biden and the U.S. Treasury can take to prevent this catastrophe. And the catastrophe she is talking about is default on the debt, where the U.S. misses a debt payment. Now, if this is so catastrophic, why don't we just avoid it? Again, I've talked about how much tax revenue we have that's well in excess 
of the interest payments on the debt. Interest payments are something like what, three, four hundred billion a year. Uh, we're collecting ten times that in uh, in taxes. What four trillion? So we got plenty of tax revenue to pay our debts. But we're not saying we're going to use that tax revenue to pay our debts. No, no. If we can't borrow more money to pay our debts, then we're not going to pay anything. Again, an admission of a Ponzi scheme. But this is the last thing that you should be saying. I mean, you know, we got people worried about the dollar, worried about the weaponization of the dollar. And we're telling our creditors, you're the low man on the totem pole. It's not really that there's the full faith in credit, because if you own a treasury, the only way you're going to get paid is if we pay everybody else and there's still money left over. Otherwise, you're SOL, right? If we can't go deeper into debt, you know, nobody is saying, right? I haven't heard Janet Yellen or anybody say, you know what? If the Republicans don't raise the debt ceiling, we can't send out the Social Security checks. No, it's all about the debt. The only people who are going to get screwed are the people who own U.S. Treasuries. Does that make any sense? Is that what the Secretary of the Treasury should be out there saying? Now, one of the things they're trying to say is that, well, we're going to use the 14th Amendment or something like that to get around the debt ceiling because they're saying that, you know, that amendment says that the that, that U.S. debt shall not be questioned. Um, but that's irrelevant to whether or not we have the money to pay. It's not about questioning the legitimacy of the debt. I mean, no one's doing that. Yes. The debt is legitimate. We just don't have any money to pay it, right? So to say that, you know, we have to pay the debt and therefore we can raise the debt ceiling. No, if they want to prioritize the debt, they can do it. In fact, what Congress should be doing right now and what Biden should be leading the charge, hey, where's the contingency plan? If we don't raise the debt ceiling, what government programs are we going to cut, right, so that we can pay interest on the national debt? What are we going to do, right? Because we have to do something. You can't just not raise the debt ceiling and not have a plan. So let's have a plan B. Okay, either we raise the debt ceiling or here's all the government spending that we cut. Right? And if we're going to default on the debt, well, let's lay it out. What's the haircut going to be? Who's going to, you know, how, how much are we going to, are we going to not pay? But then that is not um, something that we did to ourselves. We would have chosen to do that. If there is an interest payment that is missed on the national debt, it's because the government chose not to make the payment. They chose to prioritize something else because somebody's going to get paid. It's not like no government checks are going to go out if they don't raise the debt ceiling. Checks are going to go out. They just have to figure out who gets paid. Like, like you know, any business, you know, you got to prioritize or if there's a company you know, that goes into bankruptcy and there's a trustee or whatever, and he's looking over, figuring out who gets the money, right? Well, if the government can't borrow anymore, right, it's technically kind of broke. So it's got to figure out who gets paid. But right now they're saying that it's the, it's the bondholders who take the first hit, which means, you know, U.S. Treasuries are junk bonds. If that's, if that's your, you know, your collateral, that you're last. See, normally bondholders are going to be higher up in a hierarchy of, of who gets paid, right? But now, no, no, they're, they're low man on our totem pole. So why should anybody want to hold treasuries? I mean, you, you run the risk of inflation wiping out the value of the treasury. You run the risk of default. You run the risk of, you know, having the U.S. weaponize uh, the fact that you own treasuries against you and seize them for you. We've created so many reasons for holders of U.S. treasuries to want to get rid of them 
and of course, get rid of the U.S. dollar. You know, there's one more thing too that I I, I want to mention that that they're now is they're banding about uh, about the debt ceiling, and that's this trillion dollar, you know, coin, this platinum coin they want to make trillion dollar coin, and um and say, hey, we don't need to worry about borrowing money. We'll just mint a trillion dollar coin and give it to the Fed, and the Fed will give the U.S. government a trillion dollars to spend, and. If we ever did something like that, it would really expose uh, the the banana republic that we're living in, because that would really be the government literally just printing the money, because the Fed would have no real asset on its books. I mean, right now, the Fed's balance sheet consists of U.S. treasuries on the one hand, and then it issues currency, uh, Federal Reserve notes. So the Federal Reserve notes are backed by a U.S. treasury. But if the Fed will accept an ounce of platinum as collateral for a trillion dollars, its balance sheet has a massive hole in it. What does it have on its balance sheet to stand behind a trillion dollars? It doesn't have a trillion in U.S. treasuries. It's got an ounce of platinum. What's that worth? Not even 2,000 bucks. How could the Federal Reserve, if it ever had to shrink its balance sheet, What asset would it have to buy back those treasuries? A one ounce platinum coin? Who's going to take that? Who's going to say, yeah, I'll sell you my trillion dollars worth of treasuries and I'll take an ounce of platinum in exchange? Who the hell is going to want that? Nobody. If the Federal Federal Reserve ever did that, it would be impossible to shrink the balance sheet. Because at least when they have U.S. treasuries, somebody will take the treasuries because they, they pay interest, right? But who's going to take an ounce of platinum that pays no interest? And what are you going to do with it? You can't do it. I mean, you got one coin that's worth a trillion dollars. It's like you could spend it. Where, you know, where would you want to store that? It's, it's basically what it would be like. It would be like a U.S. Treasury in perpetuity that paid zero, right? Because there's no interest on it, but you can't do anything with it, but hold it indefinitely and collect no interest. It's, it's, it's really a worthless asset because the Fed can never do anything with it. So it would mean a permanent increase in the money supply. So it's permanent inflation, uh, and the Fed has no ability to ever withdraw that liquidity unless the government decides that it wants its, you know, its its coin back. But why should it ever want it back? You know, if it can just, you know, mint a trillion dollar coin and hand it to the Federal Reserve, why would it ever want it back? Right? The Federal Reserve would be stuck with it. But this would expose, right, the, the whole fraud in the system that it's just money printing, it's never going to stop. We're never going to get our fiscal house in order. Instead of all this talk about the fact that the U.S. might not raise the debt ceiling and the catastrophe that we're going to get if we don't raise it, all the press would be should be on the fact that we are going to raise the debt ceiling and the massive catastrophe that awaits us, not because we don't raise the debt ceiling, but because we do. Anyway, that's it for tonight's podcast. Uh, I'll look, I look forward to uh, the next one. I think we're going to do one midweek next week. Just one podcast next week. And then I am off to Florida uh, for um, a conference in, in Orlando. So I'm probably going to miss the Sunday, the Sunday podcast. If this is George Gammon's conference. I've mentioned it before. So anybody who's going to be attending that, I look forward to seeing you down there. My son, Spencer, is also going to be there. In fact, the entire family is going to be down in Orlando for this conference. 
Uh, so I'll be there on Sunday night instead of doing a live podcast, but I'll be able to do one the following week. Anyway, bye for now.